And thank you very much to Ruth for that uh, fantastic introduction. Um, she always gets an alumni to give this talk, and it's, it's been remarkably easy this year. She didn't have to come very far. Um, so I would like this to be hugely interactive. And the first thing, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. And the first question, I'd like you to raise your hand if you are worried about your brain. Okay. All right. Okay, good. Um, I can't profess that I'm going to help you. But the next thing I'd like you to do is I'm going to work out how old you are. I, I, want, to, I want a metric in terms of your brains. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through and just plot a nice histogram here of the distribution of your ages, if you don't mind. Um, you can lie, but <laughs> so first of all, is anybody younger than 20? Oh, okay. All right, so we'll, we'll have a little graph there. Sorry if it's not very clear at the back. Okay, anybody in their 30s? Surely everybody's 21, right? <laughs> oh, no. 30s. Okay, so this, this is my year group. Thanks for turning up, guys. All right, so we've got a few more in the, in the 30s. 40s. Ah, oh, 40s is, let's say, on a par with the 30s. 50s. Oh. Okay, welcome to the 50s. I think we're going up a bit. <laughs> 60s. Anybody in? Oh, hello, 60s. Okay, anybody above the age of 70? Hello. Okay. All right. So that's. Ooh, let's go back down here. Okay. Now, <clears throat> there's a reason I asked you that. Um, and actually, if I was giving a university lecture on, on this topic to my students, this would obviously be skewed a lot this way. And then I go on to show them the graph of when schizophrenia kicks in, which is typically around about 18, 19, 20 which is their age group. Um, and that tends to focus them a little bit. In terms of this cohort, why do you need to be worried about neuroscience? Why are you worried about your brains? Well, there are two points. The first one is when you hit 70. Uh-oh. <laughs> the age of 70 is when dementia really starts to rise in the population, when the case of the occurrence of dementia really increases. However, I slightly expected a few from my cohort, because one of the interesting things about those 30 and 40s is that they're split. They have a really interesting thing. One, their parents are entering the 70s. So they're seeing their parents maybe starting to develop signs of dementia. And the other thing is, and as I well know, we have children. And so we're looking back at our children, and you know, as any parent will do, they'll think, is my child normal? <laughs> so there are two things I want you to take from this first slide. The first thing is this word, normal. I'm making the assumption that each and every one of you in the audience, although you might be worried about your brains, is normal. Okay? 
You're here, you've had an amazing career at Oxford, you have what we call a normal brain. How did you come about that brain? Because actually, each and every one of your brains is different. So that's nurture. The second thing I want you to take from this slide is this picture here. Um, and I, I have this as my desktop screen. And so I look at it every day, and what I marvel at is these dots, these multicolored dots, are a particular type of cell, a nerve cell in your brain. And this is actually a section through a juvenile mouse brain, and you can just see how many are lit up with colors. That is less than 20% of the nerve cells in that section of brain, so you can see lots of little black holes in between. They're the other cells. How do you build that? How do you come to this exquisite structure here? And how does it actually underpin your behavior? And hopefully, I'll give you some pointers during this lecture, and we'll whiz through it. You're welcome to raise your hands at any time and interrupt me and say, look, sorry, I didn't understand that, and we'll go through it. But at the end, questions. I would love questions, because you're all worried about your brains, or at least the majority of you are. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. I think one of the key things, the key things behind my research is that we all came from this. In actual fact, less than this. A single fertilized cell. And from that moment on, we've been going on this amazing adventure, which is in part our genetics directing us to become you know, the person that we are, to become a human. But then our environment has been impacting on us since that moment to, to sculpt it. So here we have a blastocyst, a few cells, about 30 cells. That will turn into something that looks a bit like this, some alien life form, if you like. And this blue band here is the start of something called gastrulation, the most important moment in your life. And the first moment that we can actually say, there's a nervous system. As a parent, the next image I saw and I marveled at was this one here. Um, and this is my eldest son in the womb. And I have to say, I was a little bit terrified. Um, but at the same time, you're starting to see all of that come together. And eventually, obviously, out into the world. And you all have one of these. This is your brain. And just to put some numbers on it, because numbers are fun, it weighs about 1.5 kilograms. It has 80 to 90 billion nerve cells in that brain. Do you remember when you knock your head as a child and they say, oh, don't worry, there goes you know, a few thousand nerve cells. Don't worry, you had 80 to 90 billion. And between those, we've got 1,000 trillion connections. Now, if you want something to think about during the lecture, maybe you could think about how many synaptic connections are formed per second during your lifetime. It's a lot. So how do we begin to comprehend this, this absolutely amazing, this exquisite structure with these 80 to 90 billion nerve cells? Well, the first place I'm going to show you, or we're going to investigate, is this area here called the temporal lobe. Okay? And there was a series of absolutely phenomenal experiments done on the west coast of the United States. Basically, what they did was they had epileptic patients, so they had temporal lobe epilepsy, and they were just about to go into surgery. And so they stuck wires into this part of the brain. Now, this part of the brain is involved in a lot of things, but one thing it is involved in is like, higher object recognition, 
faces. Who recognizes this person here? Could you put your hands up if you recognize this person here? Okay. All right. If you recognize this person, somewhere in your temporal lobe, the Halle Berry neuron is firing action potentials and saying, this is Halle Berry. Okay, so a, this is a single recording from that area, and when you see a picture of Halle Berry, that nerve cell fires. In actual fact, it's a cluster of nerve cells, but they're only recording from one. If Halle Berry's wearing a mask or in one of her Oscar-winning performances, although Batman was definitely not one of those, again, those neurons in that part of the brain will be firing. They will be saying, Halle Berry is on stage, is on the screen. And the researchers even wrote the word Halle Berry on a card and showed it to the person. And again, the same neuron fired a train of action potential, signaled that Halle Berry, you're interpreting something about Halle Berry. Okay, for those that you didn't recognize her, I have done an extra slide, which might be more <laughs> your age group. So I cater to all, just in case. So. Yeah. Um, are there more nerve cells activated by the fact that you see Halle Berry as Batman? Um, so they're only doing a single unit recording. That's a very interesting question. Unfortunately, they couldn't tell from those experiments whether or not there's differences between it. One of the interesting things about that paper was that some of the cells actually shared, um, shared firing. So I think Jennifer Aniston and the Sydney Opera House coincided somewhat bizarrely. So, now, for those of you that recognize me, you have a Simon Butt cell. Oh dear, Chris is laughing. Okay, so you have a Simon Butt cell. And for those that you'd never seen me before, you're developing a Simon Butt cell. And by the end of this lecture, you will have a Simon Butt cell. So, um, something to, to think about there. But, you know, so one way to think about this brain then is, is that um, an analogy would be that it's like a library. If you go into the British Library, if you go into any library, what you will find are books, and those books will have letters in them, or maybe scripts. But they'll all have the same letters. Some of them will share words. Some of them will even share more global topics. But each of them will be subtly different. Okay, So if we went into our nervous system, we would find nerve cells that have properties of other nerve cells, but at the same time encode quite different things, um, future Simon Butt cells included. Yes? Um, if you go into a Um, so you have a lot of redundancy in your brain. So there are nerve cells. So the Halle Berry cells, there are you know, 20, 30 Halle Berry cells, maybe even more. And there's whole circuits that will feed the information in. So yes, but you could, the way you could think of that is that you might have several atlases in your library. So you won't just have one atlas, you'll have several atlases. And maybe they will agree or disagree slightly on their interpretation of the world. Okay? Sorry. Ah, oh, yes, hello. Uh, can you tell any difference experimentally uh, between the people who recognise someone they've seen once and people who, like myself, have to see somebody from five times before they know they've never seen it before? <laughs> <laughs> I, 
Um, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. It's a good one. I, the unfortunate thing is this sort of view, if you like, on the brain was in epileptic patients just before surgery. I think it would be, you know, if there was a way that we could go back and actually see whether memory, how memories are consolidated in humans, I think that would be fantastic, and whether or not there's a difference between them. Um, I'll have to go read that paper again. It's a very good question because actually what they did was that the last picture on occasions was the person showing the pictures to the patient. And that's why they knew that cells were being formed for that recognition. Now, whether or not there was variability in that, I th you know, would answer your question somewhat. But uh, that's, that's a really good question. Okay, so the, the problem I have then is that how do I walk into this library? Um, and the way I started, as, as Ruth mentioned, was that I, I went up to St. Andrews. And it, it was a slightly strange experience. I, I signed up for the PhD, and I got up there, and my supervisor, uh, Bob Pittman, said, well, Simon, let's, let's go see the experimental animal. And at that point, I questioned my belief in neuroscience. Um, no, this is Periplaneta americana, the American cockroach in all its glory. This one's a female. It's got a slightly distended backside here, as I'm sure you all get up close to cockroaches every so often. Um, phenomenal beasts. And my PhD was to investigate the escape response of the cockroach. Now, you might think, well, why do we need to study escape response? Well, you could imagine that we were going to develop a, a, a pesticide to slow down cockroaches to make them easy to... To, to swap. And the way it works is the cockroach has these sensors right on the back that detect a puff of wind from a stimulus. So here's you with your fly swap going for the cockroach. It detects that puff of wind. It sends the signal very quickly up to a big motor neuron here. And then, bang, the behavior is executed. It's almost a one-for-one, -one, very quick relationship. So... I tested a wide range of drugs, and we probed this, this very simple behavioral network to try and understand how this one nerve cell executes behavior. The good news is, is that I found, I found the killer molecule for slowing down cockroaches. Uh, everybody was very, very happy. Um, the funding from the MRC was gratefully received. Uh, slight problem. And it's the one reason you don't see sprays made of this particular molecule, was that the only thing that slows down cockroaches is LSD. <laughs> and I think that if you spray LSD in your kitchen, you'll be seeing more than cockroaches. So, um, just shows that maybe cockroaches aren't the best system uh, if we're going understand, you know, to understand humans. Uh, was it one of the first elements you tried? <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> um, it wasn't. Actually, the interesting thing about it was that Paul Greengard, who won the Nobel Prize for Learning and Memory, actually published in the 1970s about LSD doing it. And we, were, we found no molecules that would actually stop cockroaches. And then eventually we found his paper from way back then, uh, and we used it. Horrendous with the Home Office, but, you know, getting permission to use it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it does. And this is actually the metathoracic ganglion. So this is located in like the hind leg region. 
Um, you then have two other ganglion uh, in that same body segment, and you also have a higher brain further up. And so you can chop the head off a cockroach and it will walk around just fine. Um, so they are absolutely phenomenal, and they have this, this segmentation of their nervous system, so they're largely independent from each other. Absolutely phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. Okay, so, you know, I was obviously slightly uh, frustrated then with applying this maybe to humans. So I, I then went to, to Copenhagen and ultimately to Stockholm, and the, the thought was we needed to find... Uh, a mammalian behavior, but you need a simple behavior. And uh, this gentleman here, uh, who I'm sure the vast majority of you recognize, is showing you one simple behavior in a slightly exaggerated fashion. But normally we go left, right, left, right, left, right, rather than, and I'm not going to do that performance. <laughs> At the ends, maybe, for a question. Um, but Walking is a very, very simple rhythmic behavior. The other one you're all doing at the moment, you're breathing. And now suddenly everybody thinks about that. You're breathing. So in, out, respiration. Okay? These are the simplest behaviors, and we can go in and try and understand those networks that are responsible. So to go a little bit more scientific, we have the stance and the swing phase um, in your everyday walking, not like John Cleese was. So let's see uh, if we can play this. Okay, so um, I was very fortunate to um, collaborate with a group in Germany, and I'd like you to try and spot what is different about this mouse. Anything different? Anybody notice anything different about all of So we're studying left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. And this group came to us and they said, you know, it was very interesting that paper you published on the left, right? Um, let's see if we can go again, just because. And they said, well, you know what? We have this hopping mouse. And so what this brought to my awareness. In actual fact, this mouse has a single genetic defect. A single gene is absent in this mouse. And it goes from walking left, right, to hopping. And at that moment, I mean, I, I knew about genetics. Um, Stephen Kersey, my tutor here, um, tried to teach me genetics when I was a student. But at that moment, I realized the absolute power of genetics. So by changing one gene, we've gone from a left, right mouse to, to a hopping mouse. And ultimately, we had a very successful time in Stockholm. So we actually explored this mouse and we found out a lot about actually the basic circuitry of why both of your legs don't fly forward at the same time. Now, it seems like a really simple thing just to, you know, left, right, left, right. Um, but we actually found the circuit that stops them both going at the same time. And that's altered in that mouse. Off the back of that, I thought, well, okay. You know what? We can use this genetics. We can go up to the cerebral cortex, perception itself. So here's Descartes. Um, this was actually published after his death because he saw what they did to Galileo. He was a little bit concerned that if he published how the pineal gland was responsible for perception and oscillating around inside your head, um, that maybe the church would come after him. 
But here he is thinking about perception. So this is the brain. He thought the pineal gland was an important part, and basically it oscillated and triggered uh, circuitry coming off from this array here. It's embedded in the brain. You see the arrow. He's getting the lenses right, so you can see the information uh, coming into the eyes, going to the pineal, and then executing the movement. So he's starting to now think, and he's actually saying, there is circuitry in your body that is responsible for that. Moving on, the next person who really gave us huge insight, if you like, the Charles Darwin of neuroscience, is Santiago Ramon y Cajal. Uh, he got the Nobel Prize in 1906, uh, 1906, and he's drawing the cells of the nervous system. So that beautiful picture, that fluorescent image that we saw, they are the same cells that Cajal is drawing in this picture here. A mere hundred years later, we're still trying to identify those cells. So at this point, we have Jean Livet with his brainbow mouse. So he's not drawing them. This is a photograph. He's actually turning the nerve cells different colors, whole different colors. And so he's basically looking at how one cell might form connections with each and every other cell in that nervous system. And so you can see these blue fibers running up and down and these multicolors, and obviously the cell bodies, the larger part of, uh, of these, these nerve cells, you can see quite clearly. Um, but you're starting to get an idea of the, the intricacy, if you like. So really, how does the brain organize itself? Um, and this is a, a wonderful picture from Pasco Rakish back in the 1970s. And in essence, what your brain has in it are loads of processing units. So these are up here. And they're organized in a columnar and layer fashion. So you can see we have six layers to your brain and all this array of columns. So each column might, say, take one uh, aspect of your environment. So if we're in the visual system, it may take a particular angle to the image. So the arrow was pointing straight up. It might relay the fact that that arrow is pointing straight up, the orientation of that arrow. What we see connecting these are connections coming from other cortical areas. We see sensory input, so from the eye, from the retina, going through an area called the thalamus up to the brain. Um, and then you also have what are called modulatory inputs. So these are inputs that are shifting around. And you put all of this together, and that is, it's like a computer inside your heads. So all of these arrays are using that information, building up a sense of your environment, and then acting upon that in an appropriate fashion. So, for example, you can walk left, right, left, right. Now, this is quite abstract. In the human brain, it looks like this. So this is a stain just for, for neurons in the brain. And you can see these array of cells. It's just absolutely arrays of cells flooding down just filling out that brain. This is an infinitesimal small part of the human brain. Now, I have to say, I'm a slightly simple person. I could never, ever go into that and say, OK, what does this particular cell do then? And so the way I got around it, having done the spinal cord, I said, OK, we know genetics is powerful. Let's go back to that earliest moment. Let's see what's going to trigger, what's going to create this absolutely amazing complexity. And if we can go back to that singular point and try and understand that, then maybe we can move forward. And that is 
one of the first moments that we recognize the nervous system. So at this point, this is shortly after what we call neural tube closure. So this is at that moment of gastrulation, that sort of alien shape that we saw right at the start. Shortly after that, we get a tube. And this running around the edge here are the nerve cells that are going to populate your brain. And the ones I'm interested in are these ones labeled down with green. You might also see that there's some in red as well, just peeking around the edges here. One of the interesting things about this, you can see quite clearly, there's a, there's a boundary here where the yellow drops off. You've got some green cells, and then the red ones peek in. They're, they're in a compartment here. And then there's no green or red cells up in this section here. And the way that your brain develops is it uses what we call cross-repressive interactions. So the way to think about this is to go back to William Shakespeare. Here we have the Capulets and the Montagues, and they are going to fight. And they're going to fight over that developing brain. And they're gonna, one of them is going to win and give rise to a certain type of cell, and the other one is going to win in another cell and create something different. So you've constantly got conflict in the developing brain that will give you the right number of cells, the proper cells that you need for your normal brain function. Now, to show you that, again, going back to the mouse, unfortunately, I'm going to hit on one of the limitations for our studies. I can't show you the Capulets. You're only going to see the Montagues in this stage because we don't know who the Capulets are yet. They're out there. We don't know who they are. But here we have the neural tube closing, and we can see this genetic program triggering in the bottom bit. As we go through development, there it is, still maintaining these, still programming the cells to, be, to populate your brain with the appropriate cells. As it gets bigger, you can start to see specific domains within this region. And do you see this, like, little stars going off into the distance? They are the cells that are starting to make the move. And in actual fact, they're going to undergo a biological journey that's going to take them all the way up to here, to your forebrain. And we keep on going, and now we see the forebrain, and we see those cells streaming in, saying, OK, who do I need to talk to? Who do I need to make connections with? So this is the first moment that you're starting to get a proper brain. And as we go through, this is in the mouse, this is in the embryonic mouse, where we can actually explore these genes in huge amount of detail. And underneath, we have human gestation. So this is happening within the first three months. Now, having watched my wife go through these first three months and the medical evidence or what the doctors tell her when she goes to the surgery, you know, this is the critical period. This is the time when you've got to get the cells in the right place to start building that brain. And every other organ in that embryo is doing the same thing, trying to get into the right place as soon as possible. Now, one of the challenges I often put out there is actually genetics these days is extremely powerful. Our knowledge of the genome, there's groups in Oxford uh, that exploring the genome at unparalleled depths. And we can look at those genes, we can explore those genes um, and test them and probe them to try and work out how they come together. And to give you some idea, these are horrible names. You can largely ignore these names. But this is the Montagues and the Capulets fighting over these cells. And so they will make a, 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 a switch, if you like. They will go one way or the other. And we can then follow them as they then make another decision. 
to you know, specialise even further. And what you've got to think about is that there's going to be a cascade running off the right-hand side of this slide. That's how much we know at the moment. But the cascade will take you to the point you are at right now. You still have these genes controlling your behaviour in your cells at this moment in time. A simpler way to think of it is it's a barcode. Okay? Each cell has a genetic barcode that will tell it what it's going to be, the nerve cell that's going to be in your brain. Now, one of the powers of genetics today is that we can say, okay, what happens if we get rid of part of this barcode? What happens to the nervous system? Now, here's that developing brain. These red blobs down here, I've put a blue stain so you can see the whole brain, but the red one here are cells that express the transcription factor NKX2.1, which was up here. Now, we can use genetics to remove that gene. We can actually remove it for one day. So, in this case, we've removed it for one day, and bang. What you'll notice is you've got two bumps here. You've only got one here. Okay? And in actual fact, you've only got this region, and you completely lack those cells. And in a study we did in New York, we found that if we ablated that gene at a specific point during development, during those first three months, if you like, of... of developing your brain, we would get very, very severe neonatal epilepsy. So lacking the gene, even for the briefest moment, can have huge consequences downstream on the way that the, the brain is, is constructed. Um, yeah? Well, you could have some environmental impact, so some stress on the mother, or I mean, it could be anything that occurs to the mother might then feed through to the embryo. Alternatively, you could have a spontaneous genetic mutation that might make that gene redundant. So that can happen as well. But, you know, you could think of anything, any sort of environmental impact that might, you know, impact on the mother. Um, and it could potentially feed through to the embryo and alter those progenitor cells. So these are the cells that are dividing, starting to create all the cells that you need in your brain, and just maybe alter them for the briefest of moments that then has that huge downstream effect. Yeah. Can I just ask quickly, um, I'm bipolar. I'm quite interested to know whether this is the point at which something like that might be created too. I'll come to that. Okay. I'll come to that. Okay, so... What we've done here is actually do that temporal ablation. So we basically said, okay, we're going to remove it for a short while, and you can see you get a salt and pepper effect here. And this actually enabled us to go in and understand the cells that were altered at that time. And the way we do that is that we turn them green. So not only do we remove a gene, but we add another gene. We make them fluorescent green so we can go into the brain and we can see those cells and ask what they're doing. And that is this picture here that we saw right at the beginning. Are those genes, so all of these sort of yellowy green cells, are the NKX21 cells, the cells that you need to avoid severe neonatal epilepsy. Okay. So now we can identify all the components in your brain. Well, we can't, but we can identify a large number of them. So now we all need to know is just how to put it together. Um, it's a bit like an IKEA catalogue with a large number of pages. Um, another way to think about it is like putting a motor together. And this is a, a tractor engine here. 
So the fortunate thing is we can label one component green. So we can say, okay, this, this little nut up here, or this bolt up here, right, we're going to make that one green and we're going to see where it goes in the engine. How can we know what the promise of that cell is, what the function of that cell is? And I think we're very fortunate in Oxford. Um, somebody who I first met in New York and is now the Wayne Fleet Professor of Physiology, Gira Miesenbach, he develops optogenetics. Now, what optogenetics is, is that you can shine a laser, you can shine a beam of light and excite a cell, the cell of interest. So not only can we make a cell green, we can make it respond to blue light or to yellow light or to UV light. And so what he's doing here, he actually works in the fly and he's firing the laser beam down and he will excite that cell and he will say, what is the effect of exciting that cell in the fly brain? Okay, very, very interesting work and he's got a TED talk out on the internet. So it's really worth finding out. I mean, it's absolutely phenomenal research. Now, we decided to do this in the human brain. Who's played battleships here? All right. Okay. I play battleships every day of my life now. I go in, take a piece of brain, and fire lasers at it. And I have to tell you, it is the most exciting thing I've ever seen. Okay? And if you want to come to my lab, you'll have to phone up in advance just to make sure we're doing this. You can sit in the chair and fire the laser, and you will see nerve cells responding to that beam of light. And it, it really is just... It's unbelievable, the, the sort of what you can do with this genetics. So then what we do is we focus our laser over a piece of the brain here. So here's the top of the brain. This is the bottom of the, what we call the neocortex, your forebrain. And we're going to record from one cell. And we're going to fire our laser like battleships and see who's talking to it. We're going to go from the newborn up until the juvenile. And we're going to see how the network is built. So the first thing we see, as you get towards the red scale, it's more excited from that spot. The cell that we're actually recording is this dot here, um, and I've just highlighted areas of interest that are talking to it. So initially, not much going on. You move forward a few days, a little bit more. This cell is starting to talk to it, receive information from its environment, and then bang, up to the juvenile. Now, the reason I've highlighted these areas is from the moment this is newborn, it's receiving information from the top half and the middle half. This cell knows what information it needs to receive from the moment this animal is newborn. It's there. So this pattern, if you like, is hardwired into that cell, into that particular cell in the brain. And there are some that aren't hardwired. So here we have inputs coming onto these cells, and then bang, just as you enter juvenile age, that connection drops out. So that would be teenage years. That would be onset of schizophrenia there. And the remarkable thing is the cells that are hardwired into your brain are one type of cell, are these interneurons that we study. These ones, they'll take any information. They take the nurture. They will take information. They will change their plastic. But you know what? In terms of where we're thinking, these ones are the hardwired components. And so now, using this laser technology, we have actually discovered the scaffold for the developing brain. And this is just some of those pictures of different cells in different layers that are receiving information and building the appropriate structure. 
the exciting thing is, is the, yeah. The, the cells are the hard wire. Yeah. What is it that makes one different from another? Is it the chemistry of the cell or is it the structure of the cell itself? It comes back a little bit to the barcode. So we only know so much of the barcode. So at the moment, our, our groupings are quite crude. I think as we go along the barcode, you will get this one as opposed to this one or that one as opposed to that one. Okay, so as we explore more the genomics, the genetics of these cells, we'll get further along and actually be able to pull out that one. That's a real dream, um, because some of these are actually more important than others. They're not all equal. But one thing about these cells is that we know already that they're impacted by two genes in this barcode. The first one is called neuregulin, and it's a schizophrenia-related gene. If you have a mutation in neuregulin 1, you are likely to have schizophrenia. The other one is catnap2. Now, catnap2 was pulled out of the Amish community. Um, there was a cohort of Amish children who had very, very severe autism. And actually, uh, they had epileptic symptoms as well. They discovered the gene catnap2. And now we have a mouse that lacks catnap2 that would appear to be autistic. So we're trying to work out how this scaffold is altered in that mouse. Now... We have a number of clusters in Keeble where we're multidisciplinary. And I have to say, as a neuroscientist, I qualify for nearly each and every one. Apart from the medieval and renaissance uh, history cluster. So the next slide is my desperate attempt to get included in the medieval and renaissance cluster. Um, but the way to think about this is if you're building a structure, you've got to put in the correct foundations. Now, back in 1173... The architect is unknown, but um, the citizens of Pisa, let's have them, they decided that they would build this splendid bell tower. Because Pisa at the time was very much... Um, you can tell I'm not really into medieval renaissance. Um, but it was doing well for itself at the time. Unfortunately, they didn't get their scaffold into place. And this is the way I want you to think about the role of these genes. It's that if they are altered you don't get the scaffold into place in time. And so we all know what happened next. Bang. It tilts over. It's a functional tower. They've had to remove the bells, but it's still standing. So there's a tower, but it's off kilter. And so these genes like catnap2, like neuregulant, you will still build the brain. They're not that big an impact on the way that you build the brain, but they're subtle enough that everything's just leaning to the side. And do you remember all of those arrays of columns that I was talking about? Just imagine if all those columns were tilted off to the side. Any information, sensory information that's coming in from the environment isn't going to flood through that column in exactly the right way. Now, I don't do this work alone. Um, fantastic funding from the MRC. NASAD, the Brain and Behaviour Foundation, previously funded by the Human Frontiers and the Wellcome Trust. And these are just some of the people in my lab who have contributed to this. And I have some fantastic collaborators in Oxford. Um, and as I say, some of the work that we're doing at the moment is hugely exciting. And I hope will make a real change, a real difference to our understanding of these conditions. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you.